last week we entered the Pentecost season. Um, and you may, you may have noticed uh, that last week we wore red and this week we're wearing green. Now, um, it, liturgically speaking, red stands for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And green stands for the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of light, who was present in creation. So just so you know what that symbol is. And uh, last week, uh, Fumi gave us an electrifying reminder uh, from Acts chapter 2 about the role of the Holy Spirit in the birth of the church. And today I want to press into those themes a bit more from our gospel lesson. Specifically, I want to explore two questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? And what does he do? What does John 16 have to teach us about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit? So, for example, what do we make of the fact that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth in John 16, 13? Rather than reducing the spirit, as we often do, to the spirit of good religious feelings. What do we make of Jesus' claim that the helper will convict the world concerning sin. In fact, what is the Spirit's role in this salvation of the human race? William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II, once explained the essential role of the Holy Spirit in making believers more like Jesus by giving an analogy. He said, imagine if someone asked you to become a writer like Shakespeare. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, my family went to Shakespeare in the Park, uh, hosted at Cascades Park right over here in Tallahassee, and we had the opportunity to see both the professional production and the kids' production, which some of the talented children from Incarnation were a part of. And as I experienced these shows, I was just reminded afresh of the sheer genius of Shakespeare. I mean, in his creative command of the English language and the plot twists, by which he builds tension upon tension upon tension in the witty and multi-layered irony of his dialogue, in his diversity of characters, and his grasp of the human heart, of the human condition. I mean, who else in all English language is like Shakespeare? The 20th century poet T.S. Eliot once quipped that the two greatest writers in history were Dante and Shakespeare, and there is no third, he said. In other words, there's no one else that even remotely approaches these two giants. So in view of this, let's consider afresh Archbishop Temple's analogy. I wonder how you would feel if someone expected you to become a writer like Shakespeare. How would the weighty bar of excellence, how would you wear that? How would you respond to that? Because to me, it would seem that no amount of effort, no amount of education, no amount of personal belief, could ever bridge the gap. I could never become a writer like Shakespeare. But, as William Temple points out, if someone were to give us the genius of Shakespeare, well, then the problem would be solved. Then we could become a writer like Shakespeare. Now, he relates this to the role of the Holy Spirit in making us more like Jesus, because the scriptures call all Christians to live like Jesus Christ to show forth his self-giving love, to walk in his truth. And we all know right away that we can't do this. We can't live like Jesus. But what if someone were to give us the spirit of Jesus? Well, then we could learn to live like Jesus. And this is exactly the point, because God has given us 
his spirit could transform us from one degree of glory to the next so that we would all look more like Jesus. Would you please grab a pew Bible and turn with me to John 16. It's on page 902. And I want to begin by drawing our attention to this shocking claim that Jesus makes to his disciples in John 16, 7. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, here the apostles must have been thinking, how could it be to, your, to our advantage that you go away? What could be more advantageous than the Son of God, the Word made flesh, dwelling bodily in our midst? But Jesus goes on to explain, for if I do not go away, the helper, in Greek, the paraclete, not the parakeet, by the way, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So here Jesus is preparing his people for the next stage in salvation history. During the Messiah's time on earth, his presence has been localized. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2, 9. But the age of the spirit will actually be greater because through the paraclete, the presence of God will become universalized and internalized. In other words, we'll get more of Jesus, not less. Because his presence will become universalized, he's able to say in his great commission, behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. How is he going to be with us? Because the Holy Spirit will universalize his presence. This is why Jesus could promise to his church where two or more gather in my name, there I am in the midst of them. How is that? Because the Holy Spirit has universalized the presence of Jesus among his people. Likewise, with the coming of the helper, God's presence will be internalized, made personal as an interior reality, which is why Jesus can say about the Holy Spirit, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 14, 17. Indeed, the new covenant, in the new covenant, our very bodies had become the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you have what you would call a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I hope you would say so. Have you put your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and experienced his grace, his forgiveness, his consolation? Have you experienced the guidance of the good shepherd? If so... It's because of the universalized and internalized work of the Holy Spirit who is applying the work of Christ to your lives. And there are believers in Egypt and China and Mexico and Chile all around the world who all know this same Jesus through the same Spirit. Amen? In saying all this, we don't mean to imply that the Holy Spirit has been absent from the scene up to this point in world history or in the Bible as if somehow... You know, the Godhead gained a third member of the Trinity out of thin air. Like, whoa, hey, where have you been? We do indeed hear of the Spirit's work in creation, in the leading of Israel through the wilderness, in inspiring artistic design in the tabernacle, in speaking through the prophets, in falling upon certain individuals from time to time. But all of this was occasional 
and localized. Up to this point in salvation history, the Spirit has not yet been poured out onto all flesh, as Joel 2 prophesies. He has not yet become the lasting possession, the most glorious inhabitant of the entire believing community in the way that was about to happen at Pentecost. This final shift to the new covenant reality, which was long foretold by the Hebrew prophets, was about to take place. Jesus himself had also foretold of it in John 7, verse 38. Will you turn to page 893 and look at John 7, 38. This is a very important verse for our passage today. He said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, that sounds familiar. Didn't we just sing about that in the gospel processional? I got a river of life flowing now of me. Now, what are we talking about when we sing this? What are we talking about? Verse 39 tells us, now when he said, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The spirit had not been given, guys, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, in the Gospel of John, the glorification of Jesus refers primarily to his self-giving death upon the cross. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. As the New Testament scholar Rod Whitaker puts it, in the son's death, the glory of God shines brightest since God is love and love is the laying down of one's life. Until the son's death, the heart of God could not be known and thus eternal life, which is knowledge of God, could not be experienced. And he concludes, until the death of the son, the life of God could not be conveyed by the spirit. So as we arrive in John 16, flipping back ahead, here Jesus teeters upon the very precipice of his own glorification, of his ultimate self-revelation upon the cross. This passage comes in the midst of his farewell discourse, spanning John chapters 14 through 17, which is Jesus' final intimate instruction to his apostles on the night before his arrest and crucifixion. And the Lord Jesus lets them know that very soon he will be leaving this world and returning to his Father in heaven. And he tells them plainly in verse 5, I am going to him who sent me. And not surprising, the news of Jesus' departure is a cause for sorrow in the hearts of his closest friends. Verse 6. But Jesus has good news for their heavy hearts. Amen. He will be sending his spirit, the helper. And for the rest of our time this morning, I want to see what we can learn about the person and work of this Holy Spirit. Who is he and what does he do? The first point I want us to see is one that's so obvious that it seems to be hiding in plain sight. And that is that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is a he, not an it. Jesus makes this clear in verse 7 saying, I will send him to you. And he goes on to say in verse 8, when he comes, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world. Now, here we encounter this rapid repetition of the pronoun he. 
Although I don't think the point so much is that we ought to think of the Holy Spirit in masculine terms as opposed to feminine, but that we should think of the Spirit in personal terms as opposed to impersonal. Amen? Likewise, when we speak of the person of the Holy Spirit, we don't mean to imply that the Spirit is a human person at all, but instead that He's a personal Spirit with a will, with thoughts, with agency. Do you know that we can actually grieve the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 4.30, as opposed to some kind of mere force devoid of the characteristics of personhood. Friends, that would lessen the one of whom we speak. How would it change your relationship with God if you treated the Holy Spirit as a personal being and not as an impersonal force? Yes, the Spirit has power, but it's a power that flows from His person. Next, I want to give some context about Jesus' use of the term the helper, the paraclete, and how this title relates to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The word paraclete has legal connotations in John 16, which is why it's sometimes also translated the advocate, like an advocate in a lawsuit. In context, the courtroom is the courtroom of the world, that is, those who don't believe in Jesus, and they're about to render a verdict about him, and it's not going to go well. In fact, they're going to reject Jesus as a sinner, proclaim him as unrighteousness, as unrighteous, excuse me, and condemn him to death. And to make matters worse, Jesus foretold that the apostles will be treated in the same way. In verse 2, he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Isn't that the same way they justify their actions toward Jesus? But the good news is that the paraclete will interpret these legal proceedings of the world against the condemned disciples from verses 1 through 4 and against Jesus in verses 8 through 11 and show that it is in fact the world that is in the wrong. It's the world that is in the wrong. This is the necessary background for interpreting verses 8 through 11, which is perhaps the most confusing verses in this chapter. Jesus says in verse 8 that when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the world is about to judge the sinless Son of God to be a sinner, right? A blasphemer who makes himself equal to God. John 5, 18 and they do this because they don't believe in him. They don't believe in him, verse 9. The world is also wrong, verse 10, concerning righteousness. The, uh, the Greek word dikaiosunes uh, can also be translated justice. They were wrong concerning him, and that will be proved because Jesus will triumphantly return to his father. Who's going to be welcome into the presence of the father? Well, not his, criti not his critics, but he himself. And the world is wrong concerning judgment, verse 11, because at the trial of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will reveal it's actually the work of the devil that will be judged. Indeed, every barrier that Satan has erected between God and man will be nullified on that day. Whitaker helpfully summarizes this section, saying the main characteristics of each actor in the drama are here revealed. The world consists of all who fail to believe in Jesus. Jesus is known as the just or righteous one, and the devil is judged. Thus, the paraclete will reveal the verdict of the trial that has been in session 
throughout the gospel. Now, these are the truths that the paraclete, the advocate, will reveal to the world about how they mishandled justice and condemned the sinless Son of God. And I think one application for the church today, especially in an age that so often wants to talk about justice, that so often wants to talk about social justice, is to remember that the way that the world defines justice is not the way that the Bible defines it. Indeed, the Spirit has proven the world wrong concerning justice. This is the logical fallacy known as equivocation, to use the same word in different senses without honesty or perhaps awareness to the fact that that's what you're doing. Now, Christians make this kind of mistake all the time when they read their Bibles. We come across a word like justice or even predestination, and then we turn to our Oxford English Dictionary, or even worse, to the evening news, to see what that word means, to fill in the blanks. Now, I'm not saying there's no correspondence between the language of the world and the language of the Bible whatsoever, but brothers and sisters, the semantic range of the Bible is provided by the Bible itself. Isaiah 8.12 warns us, do not call conspiracy everything that this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The fact is that the world will call many things just that are actually unjust. And many things unjust that in God's eyes are just. And that should not surprise us. That should not surprise us, beloved. So what are Christians to do with the world's runaway use of the word justice? Well, we must avoid two opposite extremes. So the first temptation is the temptation to overcompensate. So to set aside the social dimension of justice altogether and focus entirely on personal holiness. I know some, some Christians who want to drop the use of the word justice altogether. They believe that the idea has become so co-opted by the world that they would just prefer it if the church never talked about racism or poverty or protection of the weak or police accountability. But the problem with this solution, guys, is that it's not biblical. Right? The word justice is in the Bible for a reason. The scripture often speaks of holiness in terms of its social implications. Read your Bibles. The church cannot speak on these topics. The church that cannot speak on these topics, excuse me, has sold her prophetic birthright. The second temptation is to over-accommodate to syncretize with the world in such a way that we allow groups like Black Lives Matter, which is certainly a just slogan, but they're not a Christian organization, guys, or the progressive ideologies of the political left to cloud our understanding of biblical justice or just to confuse the two altogether. So we respond with this unconscious naivete. Well, I just want to be just. I just want to be a good person. I want to be on the right side of history. Tell me, a oh wise progressive elite, what must I do? Is this too close to home for some of y'all? Beware of this error, beloved. It's rampant amongst evangelicals today. I'm convinced that both of these, area, these errors, whether overcompensation or overaccommodation, are often arising not from sound reason, but from social pressure, especially social media pressure, from, from party politics rather than from scripture, from a desire to please the world rather than walking by the spirit. But brothers and sisters, 
in his vindication of the crucified Christ, the Holy Spirit has canceled the justice of this world. The execution of Jesus Christ was a miscarriage of justice such as the world has never seen, nor could, ever, could it ever be eclipsed. So much so we needed an otherworldly witness, a paraclete, the Holy Spirit, in order for us to be able to take stock of what we had done with the Holy One of God. How else could we take it all in? How else could we understand that in judging Jesus and toasting the death of this particular man, we drank up the ocean? Consider afresh the epic reflections of the Apostle John in his prologue, which were inspired by the Holy Spirit. John 1, 9 through 11 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In fact, guys, we scapegoated him. He allowed himself to be scapegoated by us for our salvation. That's the verdict of the Holy Spirit. In her essay, The Greatest Drama Ever Staged, the 20th century playwright Dorothy Sayers reflected on the mystery of a God who willingly suffers in our place, she writes, that man did, in fact, disbelieve and that God did, in fact, take the consequences. And Sayers goes on to describe this great substitution, this role reversal where created man becomes the judge of a willfully restrained creator. She summarizes the unthinkable implication. She says that God should play the tyrant over man is a dismal story of unrelieved oppression. That man should play the tyrant over man is the usual dreary record of human futility. But that man should play the tyrant over God and find him a better man than himself? Well, this is an astonishing drama indeed. And it is in this sense that we are to understand the Holy Spirit to be the spirit of truth. Verse 13, not that the Holy Spirit's going to lead us into all truth about mathematics or chemistry or astronomy, although I'm sure the Spirit is not entirely uninvolved in these endeavors. But the point is that he will impress upon us the definitive truth of our salvation in Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer refers to the Holy Spirit as a floodlight who shows us the truth about Jesus. He says the Holy Spirit's distinctive new covenant role then is to fulfill what we might call a floodlight ministry in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. So far as this role is concerned, the Spirit was not yet while Jesus was on the earth. Only when the Father had glorified him could the Spirit's work of making men aware of Jesus' glory begin. All this is implied in our text today. Jesus says in verses 14 and 15, He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here we see that the truth of God flows in this unbroken chain from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit. Who will declare it to you? And thus we who believed are wrapped up into the light, into the life, into the self-understanding, into the three-man weave 
of God, which is from all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we would receive the verdict of the Holy Spirit about your son, Jesus. And rather than despairing at our participation and scapegoating him, would you give us faith and hope that it is for our salvation that he died? Would you bring us into personal relationship with yourself? Lord, would you protect us against the way that the world wants to enact and define justice, the way that the world wants to enact and define things? And would we increasingly put ourselves at the feet of your Holy Spirit, speaking through your inspired word? All of these things we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.